Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. This season on SageCast, we're talking with a variety of Pomona College faculty members about how they came to study what they study, teach what they teach, and love the field they love. Today, we're talking with professor of history and Chicano and Latino studies, Miguel Tinker-Salas, an expert in political and social issues facing Latin America with particular interest in Venezuela and Mexico. Since we're going to be talking about current events, you should know that this is being recorded on January 22nd, the week of an unsuccessful coup in Venezuela. Welcome, Miguel. Thank uh, you very much. Pleasure to be here and to be uh, opening up this new space uh, for conversation uh, with faculty, with staff, administrators, with the community, with the alumni, and with the students. Great. Um, well, as we speak, Venezuela's in the news again <laughs> um, with a quashed military revolt. Um, so let's start there. What... Uh, what do you know about what's going on? Does any of it surprise you? No, um, there, there, there. As you, as you, most people are familiar. There is a, a, a level of instability in Venezuela, um, particularly after the swearing in of Nicolas Maduro uh, for his second term. Um, the opposition has made it a point that they do not want to let him consolidate his power. Um, they fear that if he's able to govern for the next six years, um, they will no longer be able to compete uh, in the electoral arena. Uh, and they have put all their uh, eggs in one basket at this point. And that is essentially to delegitimate Nicolas Maduro as the president of Venezuela after a highly contested elections in the of last year. Um, and to accomplish that, what they've managed to do is to garner a significant amount of international support um, with the United States uh, taking the lead and what was called before the Group of Lima. The Group of Lima tends to be the most conservative governments in Latin America, Brazil, Colombia, Argentina, Chile, um, and they refuse to recognize the presidency of Nicolas Maduro. Um, and the opposition, um, in many ways, has given up on an internal strategy for Venezuela and is essentially lobbying for international delegitimization of Nicolas Maduro uh, by having other countries refuse to recognize his legitimacy uh, and therefore transfer power to the president of the national assembly um, in a very highly difficult strategy um, because essentially you are letting other countries dictate internal policy within Venezuela um, and that may backfire. That may backfire with a population that is opposed to foreign intervention, uh, whether it's political or military. Um, so that there, there's a, it's a high-risk strategy, um, and that which in the end might, might actually backfire and might help Nicolas Maduro consolidate power rather than weaken him. I want to pivot a little bit on, on Venezuela and start a little bit, let's say, from the beginning. Um, uh, Venezuela is more than an academic interest for you. It's, it's where you spend time, had some personal uh, stories. Can you tell us a little bit about that, the time you spent there? I, I was born in Venezuela. I am the, the, the son of a uh, North American oil worker and a Venezuelan uh, laboratory technician, both of whom worked in the oil industry. Um, and I was born and raised in eastern Venezuela in a oil town called Caripito in the state of Monagas in Venezuela, in eastern Venezuela. Um, and I am the product of much of what I write about. Um, I am the product of that oil industry, of that oil experience, of that process of acculturation uh, that took place in Venezuela. Um, so that as even as a child growing up, I lived in two diverse experiences. On the one hand, I lived in the Venezuelan society, spoke Spanish, all my friends were Venezuelan. On the other, I went to school in a U.S. oil company school. Uh, it was controlled by Creole Petroleum Corporation. Um, but even there, it was interesting because they, they had to hire uh, Spanish-speaking teachers sometimes. So many of our teachers were Mexican-American from mm -hmm. Texas. Um, so that we had a bilingual, bicultural world emerging. Uh, the curriculum was both in Spanish and English. It was an interesting experiment because you had to uh, be, uh, you, you, they were employing the Venezuelan official curriculum and there was an overlay, the U.S. official curriculum as well. So one learned the history of both countries, both experiences in both languages at the same time uh, while living in a larger Venezuelan community. Tell us a little bit about how, how what your daily life would look like. Well, my, my mother, we, we lived outside of the oil camp. So we lived in the community called Los Mangos. Um, and that was done consciously. My parents did not want to 
uh, raise me in, in that kind of American enclave, what they called later Peyton Place. Uh, for those who generationally challenged can remember uh, the small community where the social norms were dictated by a particular set of individuals. Uh, so she would take me into the, the, into the uh, oil camp school every day. Um, and then she would bring me back into the community. My father would go off to work in the refinery, um, or sometimes he would go off to work in, on a pipeline crew, and sometimes he would come back home covered in oil. And one of our tasks was to take kerosene and wash him down uh, and get it out of his hair and to get it out of his clothes, and then essentially get rid of his clothes. So we actually did live with oil. Um, and not only live with oil in the sense that my father um, and the stained clothes and his, and, but actually in our town there was actually tar deposits on the on, on, on the surface and you could actually see it and play with it and the Guanoco fields of tar were not that far away uh, and these were large kilometer long fields and as kids we would run out there and see who would sink the fastest or, or run back the fastest and and um, and there were also gas natural gas uh, um, uh, and we would light a match and throw and you see the, the gas fly up so we actually did live actually wow. with oil around us and, and it was everywhere it was everywhere um, in this small town um, that was a central, it was a small town in the eastern rainforest of Venezuela that proved to be central to an export economy and to a war uh, and to, a, and to a, an international economy because it had oil. Um, and in that sense, that's why we also have American intelligence and everything else in that small town of 5,000 people. What does that town look like now? Um, it has never been able to recover because, again, it was an industry town. Once the refinery um, ceased, um, once oil was no longer exported down the San Juan River, um, the town uh, fell on hard times. They uh, tried to... Um, Process mangle, which is the lumber that the, the 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 mangroves that grew in the in the rainforest, they were unable to. Um, so it's fallen on hard times. It it, uh, it it has a one of the most important carnivals in Venezuela. Um, the carnival in Caripito um, it draws thousands of people. The, the city still draws people uh, for particular periods of time during carnival, um, but uh, it, it it remains in hard times. Um. The living with uh, the oil industry the way you did, sort of in the middle of it. Um, do you think that had an had an impact on you long term and your thinking and your 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 view of the political situation and so on? Not so much the political situation, but it obviously affected how I viewed the country, uh, how I experienced the country. It was obvious most company employees lived in the oil camp. Um, understand that that most North Americans live behind a barbed wire fence. Um, they lived in a, a protected enclave, essentially an enclave that reproduced uh, U.S. society. You had the oil company school, you had the oil company commissary, you had the oil company social club uh, that had, that served uh, hamburgers and french fries and Coca-Cola, and you had the pool, and you had the basketball field, and you had the baseball field, and you had the tennis courts, um, and then you had the other Venezuela, the one that lived in the shadows of the oil industry. Um, and my parents opted, um, because they were a mixed couple, to live in the Venezuelan society. So I would, in, mm. in, in, I would intrude into the U.S. camp to go to school or social functions, but we lived um, in an, a rural community called Los Mangos, um, which was uh, in, on the outskirts of Caripito, the, my hometown, um, and that was a whole different world. Uh, one in which you saw uh, the poverty, one in which you saw the inequality, one in which you did not see oil as that key agent changing everyone's life. And it gave you a very clear perspective. And I detail that in my book, The Enduring Legacy, Oil, Culture, and Society, in which I start by telling people exactly where I fit into this equation, how, I, how, my, how that perspective influenced how I viewed uh, Venezuela, oil culture, oil society, and oil as an instrument of social and political change. Did your experience in Venezuela, was that what framed you, framed or uh, made you want to study the history and, and politics of these countries? Or tell us a little bit about that. Well, when I was, when I was in, 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 as an undergraduate at the University of California, San Diego, um, no one mentioned Venezuela. No one studied Venezuela. Venezuela was a quote unquote, what I've called in another book, an exceptional country. It had a model democracy. It didn't have any uh, major class 
schisms. It seemed to have resolved the racial problems because everybody was intermixed and it was cafe con leche. Um, there was a mixture of coffee and milk. Um, and and uh, so therefore it didn't draw the attention. People mm -hmm. gravitated towards um, the geopolitical equation uh, that the, how the U.S. viewed Latin America. And first was Mexico because that was the neighbor. Then it was the large countries, the geopolitically important countries, mm -hmm. Argentina, Brazil, and Chile, what people call the ABCs. And then it was wherever there was a revolution. So if there was one in Cuba, people studied Cuba. If there was one in Nicaragua, people studied Nicaragua um, to understand what caused the revolution. So that in, when I was, as a, as a student growing up, you would hear about Simon Bolivar, because obviously he was this important figure in independence. Um, and then you would hear nothing else about Venezuela, except that maybe it had a lot of oil. Um, so we studied Mexico, we studied Argentina, we studied Brazil and Chile. Um, when I came back as a grad student and said I wanted to study Venezuela, uh, all the faculty advised against it. They said, you'll never find a job. Um, because again, you need to study the countries that, that are geopolitically important for the US. They never quite said it that way. They didn't say, these are the countries that the State Department thinks is geopolitically important. Because after all, it's still money followed the geopolitical concerns. The fellowships were there to study Mexico. The fellowships were there to study Argentina or Brazil or Chile. Um, so I, in, I, got the, I got the hint. Um, I, with, with all the int my interests anyway, were, I, I very much loved Mexico and I've been exposed to Mexico since I came to the US, um, that I willfully studied Mexico and, and <laughs> did a dissertation on uh, Northwest Mexico and its transformation uh, during the revolution. And that was my first book uh, from the University of California Press. Um, help us understand the role of oil in Venezuelan history, um, its politics, its culture, its uh, economy. Oil is <clears throat> discovered in, in, in 1914 um, in, in the uh, western part of Venezuela um, as a commercially viable product. It had existed always in Venezuela. Um, when the Spanish arrived, they document the presence of, of, uh, of oil on the surface. They document uh, its presence, its existence. They use it to cock their ships. Um, they even sent it back uh, as, a, as a medicine for arthritis to the king. Um, <laughs> didn't quite do the job, though. Um, but in essence, oil was always there. The problem was there wasn't an internal combustion engine that needed oil. <laughs> right. um, the real transformation for oil comes when the British Navy, beginning in the early part of the 1900s, decides to go from coal to oil-powered ships. Um, the U.S. does the same thing shortly thereafter, um, and therefore there's now a need for oil on, a com on a, an important commercially viable basis, and British and American interests begin looking for oil deposits in Mexico initially, and then in Venezuela. Um, and by 1922, and by December 1922, these massive deposits are found in Venezuela with one oil well spewing over 100,000 barrels a day. <laughs> um, and therefore, Venezuela becomes the epicenter of oil. Oil permits then uh, dictator Juan Vicente Gomez to consolidate power um, because the oil companies want the stability provided by a military dictator. Um, the U.S. sends military advisors. The U.S. sends its Navy to support Juan Vicente Gomez. So oil um, holds the promise of change, but in essence, it becomes the me mechanism by which the dictator can consolidate power and hold power uh, from 1908 to 1935. So oil increasingly becomes the lifeblood of the country. Um, it, Venezuela, by the, by the middle 1930s, has become the world's largest exporter of oil. Not to be confused with the producer, but the largest exporter of oil. Um, and throughout that whole period, oil held the promise of change. It was going to transform Venezuela. It was going to bring modernity. It was going to bring social change. Um, it did, to a certain extent, if you went to the major urban centers, uh, they were being transformed. The cities were growing, were booming. Um, the war period proved the importance of oil. Uh, General Maxwell, Frank Maxwell, uh, head of the Caribbean Command, says, of all the countries in Latin America, I only need one, Venezuela. It is beautifully rich in oil. Uh, his exact words, um, so that, again, it highlighted the act that the, with access to Venezuelan oil, the U.S. Navy could power its vessels. It had access to oil. Um, it could fuel the U.S. industrial economy. Um, and again, it highlighted the importance of oil. And even though there was a 
democratic period there in the 1945 to 48. Oil once again served to reinforce dictatorship, um, and Venezuela lived under dictatorship until 1958. Oil nonetheless did transform the country for certain sectors. Um, Caracas became a modern metropolis, um, the highest cost of living in Latin America, which meant that most people couldn't afford to buy the average goods they needed. Um, <laughs> it had um, multiple... Um, uh, airline services to Washington. Eventually, it had direct Concord flights to Paris for those who could afford it. Um, the first Pierre Cardin and Christian Dior stores in Latin America. Uh, shortly thereafter, Sears followed, and so did all the other um, symbols of U.S. culture, modernity, and society. Um, so oil was a transformative element um, in Venezuelan society, but again, within certain parameters and certain limits. You've just mentioned how oil was so influential in Venezuela's history and, and its economic boom. And now it's portrayed in the media as this economic basket case and this political powder keg. Can you tell us how accurate is that depiction? How Where is Venezuela now? Well, um, it, it's it's interesting how you posed it because Juan, Pales, Juan Pablo Perez Alfonso, um, the minister of petroleum in the 19, uh, late 50s, early 60s, coined the phrase, the excrement of the devil. Oil is the excrement <laughs> of the devil. Right um, color too. And um, he um, he drew that of a, a, from a um, Spanish uh, um, travelogue um, in the 15, early 1500s when the Spanish arrived um, and they saw oil floating on the surface. Mm. The indigenous actually told them they had already labeled it the excrement of the devil. Huh. Um, so that it, there has always been that kind of relationship with oil in the country in terms of the kind of symbol it represented. So for certain sectors, it's represented change, modernity, um, and for others, it represented simply uh, a dependent relationship that tied Venezuela to the U.S. Um, and that exposed the vulnerabilities of the Venezuelan economy. Um, and I think that the current situation has exposed those once again. Um, under Hugo Chavez, um, Chavez set out to reframe the model, to take oil and to utilize the profits derived from oil to transform the society in a very rapid, dramatic fashion. Mm -hmm. um, he also set out to certify Venezuela's oil deposits, which had been kept uh, somewhat um, not fully certified by the previous governments. That meant that with the addition of the heavy crude deposits in the Orinoco uh, Delta Basin, um, Venezuela has the highest deposits of oil, the largest deposits of oil in the world, greater than Saudi Arabia. Mm. The problem with that is that it's heavy crude, and heavy crude requires mm. extra refining and ironically involves importing light crude, in some cases from the US, to mix with the heavy crude so that you can actually be able to commercially sell it as light crude. Um, and th therein lies the contradiction um, that, that, that expanded um, increment of Venezuela's reserves simply heightened the dependence mm -hmm. um, at a time in which um, the, the population was growing, at a time in which the demands on oil were being were greater, and at a time in which the government was um, uh, intent on transforming society, but was not investing in the infrastructure, mm -hmm. was not investing in the actual industry which was required to propel this transformation forward. Mm -hmm. um, so that in many cases, uh, part of the conditions uh, that we see today has been because of the lack of investment in infrastructure. Um, and I think something else, I think fundamentally uh, the issue of the heavy crude uh, is, a, is a flawed pr presentation of the issues in Venezuela. Venezuela would have been much better off focusing on attempting to produce light crude in finding ways of extracting further light crude from wells that had already been drilled rather than focusing on something that is so complicated as heavy crude and that requires more refining, more investment, and a higher point of production and a cost, uh, which means that the barrel of oil has to be at a higher price mm -hmm. for the country to have a profit. Now, that's only part of the problem. Mm -hmm. The other part of the problem is how politics have turned into a zero-sum game in Venezuela, one in which um, the government um, has increasingly become um, more authoritarian, 
um, has moved increasingly to consolidate power vis-a-vis an opposition that has also become more violent. Um, so again, the, the two of them um, have failed to recognize the existence of the other. Um, they act as if Vene- this is a zero-sum game. Um, and what Venezuelans really need to address is how to reconcile those differences, how to create a political process under which they recognize the presence of the other, and they can assure some level of governability. Because otherwise, if the Chavistas are defeated tomorrow, they will assume the position of opposition and will repeat this whole process. Or likewise, if the Chavistas are confirmed in power, the opposition is not going anywhere, the Chavistas are not going anywhere. So the future has to be how to find some middle ground where you can create conditions that permit uh, to reconcile differences and to create conditions of governability to tackle the real serious issues, dependence on oil, corruption, crime, inequality, uh, because although the government may have initially ch- uh, tackled poverty, the reality is that poverty has increased again, mm-hmm. and poverty is another, a factor again, as are shortages of food, of medicine, and of other basic products um, that the country has been forced to import. Because remember when I said earlier that beginning in the 1930s, Venezuela became the world's uh, leading exporter of oil. It also became a net importer of food. At the same time, it also in the same decade became a net importer of the basic goods it consumed because most people increasingly moved from the rural to the from, to the rural to the urban areas, abandoned the countryside, agricultural production declined. Um, not that Venezuela's agricultural production was ever um, sufficient to provide for the basic goods, but with oil, there was now a alternative to working in agriculture that paid much better, um, and increasingly people became dependent on the state. Um, Long before Chavez, long before Chavez, people became dependent on the state um, to provide for those basic goods. And it created a a relationship that continues um, to be a factor in Venezuela. Of course, now there's also hyperinflation to deal with, and the numbers are kind of staggering. I, a million I, percent inflation. Yeah, and po- I read somewhere it could be up to 10 million percent next year. That's right. So when, when Maduro has announced economic measures, for example, a few weeks ago that the, 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 new, pr- the new salaries will go up to 18,000, well, the price of food went up equally at the same time <laughs> and essentially nullified whatever increase there was. So what does that mean for people's lives? What that means is that the price of goods change every day, that people are chasing a smaller amount of goods, um, that people are hoarding, uh, that some companies hoard as well to ensure that they get a higher price the next day. Um, and it's, it's, it's something that's untenable. It's largely untenable. And it also means that subsidized products, because here's part of that issue we raised earlier, that the government sets prices. Many of the products are subsidized. Gasoline is subsidized, the cheapest gasoline in the world, um, except that it winds up going to Colombia or to Brazil because you can sell it at market prices on those in those areas. Or products go across the border or they get put on the informal market where the prices are raised. So again, you have you have a multiplicity of, of challenges to tackle um, in being able to provide for a society um, that has become depend that is dependent on oil and dependent on a state to provide those products. Um, and what, 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 what's troubling to me is that neither the government or the opposition has an answer to those questions. They have not grappled with how to deal with the dependents. They have not grappled with how to improve the economy. They have not grappled with how to address corruption, which is an age-old problem in Venezuela um, that has become, that has mushroomed in recent years. Um, but again, it's an age-old problem. There's an old saying in Venezuela, um, ponme donde haya. Don't, don't give me any money. Just put me where I can make my own money. We touched a little bit earlier on this, but um, Vice President Pence released a message um, supporting uh, the opposition um, and urging resistance as well, given the the recent uh, activity um, against the government in in Venezuela. What are your thoughts about that, and what what has been the role of the U.S. in that situation? Well, as a historian, it, it brings back mind that every time the U.S. has done something like that, it's backfired. Um, whether it was in Argentina against Perón, uh, when Perón ran for president and the U.S. put out a uh, consultation with the Republic of the Americas um, that uh, blasted Perón. Uh, Perón was able to use that 
to rally support behind himself. Um, when it attempted to do something like that in Cuba or uh, with, the, with the Bay of Pigs or in other times with intervention, it has backfired. Um, Venezuela is entering a very, very difficult period and any action on the part of the U.S. can actually backfire and permit Maduro to consolidate power by saying it's either me or the U.S., it's either you support me or you're going to get the U.S. governing Venezuela. Um, and again, to the extent that, that Pence uh, or anybody else in this administration uh, does something like that, it really does fuel that argument that Maduro is often uh, quoted as saying they're trying to intervene, they're trying to intervene, um, and creates conditions um, that are not, I think, uh, fruitful for Venezuelans themselves resolving these issues. Because in the end, it's Venezuelans who are going to have to govern the country. It's Venezuelans who are going to have to resolve their differences. It's Venezuelans who are going to have to come to terms with whatever uh, happens in that country. It's not Mike Pence. It's not Donald Trump. It's not Marco Rubio. In a, in a way, that's a, a problem the U.S. seems to, to uh, a mistake the U.S. seems to make rather frequently in Latin America um, with um, um, sort of villainizing some leader. We always seem to have villains in Latin America, Castro and Noriega and now, and then Chavez and now Maduro. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, it's always easier to, to, I, to uh, rally against an enemy. And not just Latin America. Let's not talk about Iraq or <laughs> Afghanistan or right. Syria uh, or everywhere else the U.S. finds. Um, and, and then we talk about the, the the axis of evil where we connect to Latin America with the Middle East and with Iran. Or we talk now in Pence, Pence language, the Troika, no, I'm sorry, in John Bolton Pence language, the Troika of tyranny <laughs> in Latin America, which is Cuba, Nicaragua, uh, and Venezuela. And we were going to overthrow all three governments. Well, you know, that didn't do too well in Iraq. It didn't do too well in Afghanistan, unless the U.S. is willing to engage in nation building in Latin America, uh, a failed policy, I, I would suggest, at best, uh, a naive at worst. Um, I think that the best solution for Latin America is for Latin Americans to resolve their own issues um, and to, 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 be, to allow that to happen uh, in the context of sovereignty, of non, and this is where Mexico has played a very important role and that the change in presidency in Mexico and a return to what's called the Estrada Doctrine, Estrada Doctrine, where Mexico uh, asserts that it supports um, self-determination, national sovereignty, and promotes resolution of conflicts through peaceful negotiation. Um, Mexico, up until the election of, of Andrés Manuel López Obrador, was a member of the Lima Group. But now that Andrés Manuel López Obrador has returned, has taken power in Mexico, um, and was elected president, um, Mexico has essentially withdrew, withdrew, withdrawn uh, symbolically from the Lima Group, asserting that the issues in Venezuela must be resolved by Venezuelans, the issues in Nicaragua must be resolved by Nicaraguans, the same way the issues in Mexico must be resolved by Mexicans. It's a perfect transition into Mexico. <laughs> That's where we, we want to go next. Why is it so important for us to study Mexico's political and social history? Um, if nothing else, because we're neighbors <laughs> <laughs> and we share a 2,000-mile-long uh, um, uh, border uh, between both countries. Um, and Mexico is not just in Mexico. Mexico is right here. Yeah. Um, to deny the fact that we are living in territory that was once Mexico, um, just think in San Antonio, Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco, um, and think about what that means. Um, and think about the fact that Mexico um, is more than just a neighbor. It's an integral part of the social fabric of the U.S., as much as some people would want to deny it, um, I don't know if anyone saw the the uh, little uh, spoof that was running online uh, that claimed uh, to do DNA tests on the people airline. who claim yeah. the uh -huh. airline who claimed that they were anti-Mexican until they were told that they have 25% Mexican and they would be given a 25% discount on Auto Mexico. Uh, I found that to be uh, hilarious um, because again, these individuals were saying, "Well, we hate Mexico, but we love burritos. Uh, we hate Mexico, but we love tacos." Um, we love our nachos. Um, it is that kind of contradiction where people can actually talk about this dislike for a country that is so much a part of their own life. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, what, that's what's so, so uh, troubling about this discussion of a wall. Um, 
I travel across the border uh, on, a, on a monthly basis, and increasingly the U.S.-Mexican border is starting to look like Checkpoint Charlie on the height of the Cold War, uh, with all that's missing is the machine gun turrets, because we have the lights, we have the barbed wire, we have the fences, we have the military presence, we have the border patrol in presence, we have the satellites, the radars, the, the, the magnetic uh, 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 raise. We have it all. Um, yet it's a country with which we share a border, share a population, share a culture, share DNA. Um, and, and it's been a part of the U.S. history since its very beginning. The same way that anti-Mexican sentiment has been a part of U.S. history with the beginning of Manifest Destiny. Uh, if you think about how the U.S. framed its own identity, it was vis-a-vis -vis Mexico. It was in pushing towards Texas. It was in pushing towards New Mexico, Arizona, and California that the U.S. began to define what it meant to be an Anglo because they became the other against which the U.S. framed their own identity. Um, and, and that continues in many ways today. And the, the heated debate uh, around the border and about the wall has reframed it. When the president says there can be no nation without borders, what he's saying is, that those borders protect a certain identity, a certain point of view, a certain ethnicity, a certain race, when in fact, those boundaries are open to commerce, to trade, to interaction, to migration. Um, and what's really needed is how to reconcile those differences um, and find ways to build bridges and not walls. Well, of course, it's impossible to talk about Mexico now without it, talking about immigration and the, the sort of, I mean, we have, of course, the, the, the shutdown of the government over, over, over those questions right now. Um, can you shed a little light on the situation on both sides of the southern border right now? Well, I think that we have a situation in which we have an invented crisis, in which a crisis has been concocted to create uh, the perception that there is a border crisis. Well, if you travel to, and interesting enough, people who, who really uh, that's being directed at are the people who are the furthest away from the border. The people who live on the border, like in El Paso, know that El Paso and McAllen are some of the safest cities in the U.S., People who live in San Diego and others know that some of the safest cities in the U.S., yet we're being told that we're, that we're facing a brown invasion. And it's been referred to as a brown invasion. It has been racialized. It has been uh, ethnicized. Um, and the, the perception that's being created is that somehow American values, American views, U.S. culture, society, language is now threatened by the presence of a five-year-old coming across the border with his mother or father because they, they cannot live in Honduras anymore because the, 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 the option of staying is no longer there because the government in Honduras is in an illegitimate government. Um, it was elected uh, by fraud. Um, it has uh, persecuted its own population. Um, the, the gangs in Honduras um, are, are running a significant part of the economy and the government, and there is repression, there is unemployment, um, and they simply can't live there. Um, and that's the same for El Salvador and Guatemala. Um, it's not a coincidence that countries that saw U.S. intervention and that saw failed U.S. foreign policy mm. are now forced to migrate from their countries to try to find an alternative, as they are from Haiti. Um, and here's where I, I make a, a particular uh, in, uh, insight in terms of what I've written about. And, and I talk about that the border has now become internationalized. It's no longer simply a binational border between mm -hmm. the U.S. and Mexico. Mm -hmm. That border is the border between the U.S. and Latin America, the U.S. and the third world, the U.S. and Africa. In Tijuana today, we have Hondurans, Guatemalans, Salvadorians, Haitians, Cubans, Venezuelans. Um, we have Eritreans. We have uh, Somalians. We have others. Uh, all looking for the American dream, uh, that the U.S. should look at that as something positive. People see the U.S. as a sign of hope. People see the U.S. as an opportunity. And I think that, that instead, we've used that to promote a certain sense of superiority, of racism, of, uh, of uh, uh, rejection of the other, um, to try to define a political agenda by scapegoating a certain sets of people. 
Um, and the, there is a social cost to it. There's a human cost to it. Um, what Central Americans are facing today is a humanitarian crisis, not a border crisis. Uh, what Tijuana is facing, what, El, what Nogales is facing, what Ciudad Juarez is facing, what Matamoros is facing, is a humanitarian crisis, um, the, the likes of which we've not seen before. Um, and people have walked um, thousands of miles to try to improve their life uh, and improve their conditions. And what they confront then is be scapegoated. And it's, it's largely caused by blocking the, the asylum seekers and forcing them to stay. There's an effort to try to have Mexico become the repository for asylum seekers um, because the U.S. claims that its system is overrun. Um, the, re the reality is that there's profits being made by asylum seekers in private prisons and in private operations that take place all along the border. They have been the largest beneficiaries of the human misery uh, and the asylum seekers. I interviewed uh, a Haitian um, uh, who told me he was uh, he had acquired he had requested asylum? He was detained uh, in a de center of detention in in California for several months, for three months. Then sent to one in Arizona. Then sent to one in Texas. Then sent to one in Florida before being deported. So for an entire year, someone was making money on his labor, on his st stay there. Um, and in the end, he was deported. Um, again, those are the private prisons and the private prison network that is benefiting tremendously from a humanitarian crisis. Let's stay at the border and pivot a little, a little bit to your classes. You said you take uh, trips every month and you took some of your students last year. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? What, would the, what was the goal of that trip? Um, we, we, um, I, I've always taught a course called the U.S.-Mexican border since I came to Pomona College. Since my first book was actually uh, Under the Shadow of the Eagles, so Nora and the Transformation of the Border. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the border always fascinated me as a site of that kind of interaction between two countries, two peoples, and now more than two peoples, but... Yeah. Uh, dozens of, of different communities and cultures. Um, and it, we've taken the, the students to the border. So this time I, I, I uh, co-taught the course with my colleague April Mays, Professor April Mays. Um, and the, she, we added a different dimension to it because she was keenly interested in the Haitian community that was now seeking refuge in Tijuana. These are Haitian individuals who left their country as a result of the, the earthquake in Haiti, mm -hmm. sought employment in Brazil because Brazil was hiring for the Olympics and the World Cup. Uh -huh. And they'd gone to Brazil to work in construction projects. Once those projects culminated, they were uh, left unemployed. Many of them began the trek from Brazil by foot across Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, the Straits of Darien in Panama, all the way through Central America, walking through Mexico to reach Tijuana, hoping to apply for asylum in the U.S. Um, and we, we documented, uh, uh, Professor Mays and I had gone to Tijuana several times and documented many of these cases, had gone to the refugee centers, had gone to the asylum centers, and we decided to, to recast the class as the U.S.-Mexican border um, with, with a focus on asylum seekers, uh, with a focus on individuals who were trying to improve their lives and include the Haitians, um, as well as the indigenous Mexicans, because the border is also a refuge for indigenous Mexicans fleeing Guerrero, Chiapas, and Oaxaca, uh, where they, are, they, are, they face racism and they face marginalization and discrimination. So we expanded the class to include um, the experience of all these asylum seekers uh, and these undocumented individuals. Um, and we, we, we've planned it for a particular day. Uh, lo and behold, that was the same day Donald Trump decided to go to the border. Um, That's so, right. That's uh, right. He, he went to uh, uh, to look at the prototypes that had been built. Um, <laughs> and while I was there, uh, I got a phone call from Univision, the television channel 34 in Los Angeles, KMEX, um, and several other stations. And I asked the students if they were interested in being interviewed. Um, and we happened to be the only delegation of students that were on the Mexican side 
while Donald Trump was on the U.S. side, literally separated by the wall. Um, we could see where they were, and we could see where we were, and a lot of our students were, um, I was interviewed, they were interviewed, um, they were interviewed by uh, uh, Televisa, the central Mexican television news company, by Univision, by, and I think this, for the students, it was a great experience, because we, we, they were able to see the wall and the border from the U.S. side, but then we had also organized a trip on the Mexican side, where we ran the course of the actual wall, and they could see the wall existed. Uh, they could see that the, the, the barriers existed, and they could see the impact that those had, and they were fortunate enough to see uh, at the same time as Donald Trump was on the other side. Now, you were also an observer during the, the, the recent elections in Mexico. Can you tell us about that experience and also a little bit about the new Mexican president? Um, yeah, in July, I was uh, part of a group of academics um, that uh, were invited to become uh, in, uh, observers. Uh, it was a very interesting experience um, because, again, in, in, this, is the, this would have been the third time that Andres Manuel López Obrador was running for president, uh, the first time as the head of a party called Morena, uh, Regeneración, uh, National Regeneration Party. Um, and, and in the past, there had been very obvious cases of corruption, vote buying, vote influencing. Uh, and there was the fear that that might happen again. Um, the, the PRI, the party in power, the party of the institutionalized revolution, still had tremendous amount of resources, access to funds. Um, and there was the fear that they would resort to the same kind of vote buying and corruption. And what, what became very obvious was that this time, uh, people's indignation with what happened trumped any kind of fear that the PRI or the PAN could try to promote. Um, there was huge turnouts everywhere we went. We were assigned um, a district eight, with eight different polling stations, um, and uh, we were moving from place to place. The first Saturday we went and actually did an inspection of all the voting booths and all the voting places so that Sunday we'd be ready. Um, and I was accompanied by Professor Victor Silverman as well um, in this process, uh, and we did, a, we did a tour. Um, and then we were there when they opened the ballot. We were there when they checked the credentials. We were they're able to validate that the process was happening. We were able to uh, also validate that members of a particular party, the PRD, the party of the Democratic Revolution, were trying to vote by. They had put up their offices across from the, uh, the polling stations. Um, people could actually pass by and pick up a bag of food and groceries on their way out of voting. Um, we were able to document that, photograph that, get media attention on that, call the police on that, so that we were trying to, to, to do our part to ensure that they were free and fair elections. Um, and then after the, then we actually stayed at a particular voting booth um, and helped count the votes, observe while the, 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 the delegates there counted the election. And it was obvious that Andes Manuel Obrador won by uh, the largest of margins um, and uh, that the popular will was for dramatic political change. After all, this was a person who was running on, a, on an agenda to to regenerate, to renovate Mexico, to tackle corruption, to, to break apart the old power mafias that had governed Mexico, um, and to redirect it uh, towards the sectors that have been most marginalized. After all, 53 million Mexicans live in poverty, um, and, and that's a tremendous number. Um, and now we see the beginnings of that change with Andres Manuel Obrador, um, and the efforts to uh, prosecute those individuals who are involved in the theft of gasoline and the theft of petroleum products, uh, as we saw, unfortunately, recently with the massive explosion in the state of Hidalgo. Now, that's the consequence of uh, how this process of corruption has been ongoing uh, under multiple presidencies, costing the government over $3 billion a year uh, in just stolen petroleum products. Um, so that, again, it's very important not to blame the individuals um, who were in the actual process and who suffered the consequences of the explosion, but actually to look at the mafias of power that are behind uh, the theft of gasoline, to look at the white-collar criminals who promote it and who have been benefiting from it in the unions, in the political parties, um, and in uh, power structure in Mexico uh, for quite some time. Let's talk about a, bit, a bit about your career as a historian. Can you trace back to the point where you're like, this is what I want to do, this is what I want to study? Um, it was fits and starts. I, I won't say that I, I, I had a very good instructor. Uh, my mentor was 
um, one of the only Mexican-American uh, 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 Mexican history professors in the country, Ramon Eduardo Ruiz, and I pay homage to him. Um, he was a World War II veteran, a pilot um, who helped build up the um, history department at UCSD in San Diego um, and was my mentor. He was my, he was, he was my teacher in undergraduate, and then he was my teacher as a graduate student uh, with a 10-year, 12-year hiatus. Um, so in, in that sense, and, and seeing his passion and in seeing his ability to, to connect with students and to understand the role that history plays in a modern society and how there is an official story that we all are told and we all are part of. And then there is the other history, the history of the people who actually are the makers of that history, the peasants, the women, um, the workers um, who, who uh, construct societies and who participate in societies. Um, and, and I always felt that that other history wasn't being told and, and that that history needed to be, to be told. Um, and I always, I have Bertolt Brecht's poem on my door. Uh, it says, the, uh, the president built this and where were the workers? Um, the generals built this and where were the soldiers? Um, so I'm, I'm paraphrasing, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, but it, um, it was the uh, desire to, to, to see that other history being told. Um, I remember being, as I, as I had good professors, I also had professors who repeated that old history. I remember being told by a professor, a very famous Western historian, Mexicans contributed nothing to the history of the Southwest and, and, and actually uh, being taken aback because um, I knew otherwise. Um, and, and remember, I, I'm studying history at a time in which there was a war in Vietnam. Um, in which there was an active civil rights movement, women's movement, gay movement in the U.S. Um, so that I, I'm studying history as a live participant in a process of social change um, at the same time that I'm studying history and trying to make sense of the history I'm in with the history that I'm that I'm seeing in my classroom. Um, and as a young Latino student uh, in the US during that time period, one which identified with the Chicano student movement, it was a part of the Chicano student movement, um, I, I saw history as a vehicle um, to rewrite that history that had been omitted. And was that since that, um, that there was a misunderstanding or a misrepresentation of, of Latin American history and Latin American, the, the importance of Latin American contributions, part of what made you decide to turn your focus back on your own origins, back on Latin America? There was, there was an erasure, uh, more than, than, than and an omission. There was a conscious erasure and omission um, in which uh, that history had been erased. It, it been, hmm. had been uh, uh, simply looked upon, uh, they were the workers, they were the day workers, they were the pickers, they were the agricultural workers, um, and not the actual participants uh, in this process of change. I, I didn't set out to do history as, as a process of political change. I love history as a topic. Um, and uh, I, I like to be able to, to recount a story based upon archival evidence and based upon the historical record, not based upon ideas and suppositions, but based upon, because I, I am an archive-driven historian who spends countless hours in archives um, doing research to be able to write that history. And, and I find those voices, they're there. Um, and when they're not, it speaks volumes as well. Because when you see that, that, that they're being excluded, you know that there's a, there's a narrative that's clearly being omitted. So for example, in my first book on, on, on uh, uh, Sonora and the border, um, I found it very interesting to go into uh, jails and criminal archives and see what was being classified as quote unquote deviant behavior, right? And actually cussing a foreigner uh, was classified as deviant behavior and you could be arrested. Faltando respeto a un extranjero. Um, so oh it tells you an awful lot about the social system and how it's being constructed when you find something like that. Or when you're doing research and you find that the American general, uh, Mr. Maxwell says, the only country that I needed was Venezuela. Um, that gives you a whole other perspective on how Venezuela is being constructed. Because um, in my current book that I'm working on now, I'm actually looking at that period from the 40s to the 50s and that process by which the U.S. engaged in nation building in Venezuela. When did you start? studying Venezuela, you said as a grad student, right? Like you should focus on geopolitical powers. I, when did you shift or when did you start looking at Venezuela as, as a historian? I waited till I got tenure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I followed my, the advice of my, of my, of my advisor. Uh, and I, in the, clearly in the back of my mind, 
Um, um, and and the, Pomona was very helpful in that because in the transition from a large research public university to a liberal arts college, I had a much, much more freedom um, to be able to develop my own research. Um, and while never abandoning Mexico, um, while still teaching a course on Mexico on a regular basis, I was able to begin to develop my own interest in Venezuela, um, to write a book like The Enduring Legacy of Oil, Culture, and Society in, in Venezuela, to write a book about, uh, an edited book uh, with another colleague about um, the, the, the election of Hugo Chavez and what that meant in the context of Venezuela, or to write a book about, a general history book about the history of Venezuela and what people should know. By the way, that's an Oxford title, not my title. Um, <laughs> so that- uh, What was your title? That, well, the series is called what, what Everyone Needs to Know. And there's one for China, for Cuba, for Venezuela, uh, for fracking, for uh, multiple topics. So that's part of a series that they, mm -hmm. that they have. Tell us a little more about your research, uh, how you go about your research. You mentioned that you um, are archives focused, um, but I gather you don't spend a lot of time in libraries necessarily. It's it's out in the field looking for other kinds of information. Well, well, I, I do. I, I not libraries per se, but I, I just since I'm on sabbatical right now, I just finished um, a three month uh, stay in archives. Um, I was in the U.S. National Archives in College Park, Maryland, uh, for a, a period of time, um, going through diplomatic documents, going through um, military attaché reports, um, going through something I found, which very few people have ever studied, which is the role, for example, of the FBI in Latin America. Uh, during World War II, the FBI had this, the secret intelligence, the special intelligence service, um, which was a precursor to the CIA, which operated um, in every Latin American country. And I was fortunate enough to find um, the actual personal statements from all the former agents. And here's how the work of a historian works, because I would find um, the and uh, I would find I wouldn't be I wouldn't find the names of the agents, and and it's something. Then it occurred to me. Well, that when they they must have passed away, let me try obituaries. So I began looking at obituaries, and the families were all forthcoming in the obituaries. Um, <laughs> Thomas so and so worked for the FBI in Venezuela during World War II. And having the name, <laughs> now I had the name, now I could begin tracing the, or that person. Uh -huh. And in the end, I was able to put together a list of all 25 agents that were in Venezuela by yeah. relying on obituaries. <laughs> and then finding the uh, FBI Retiree Association. Because I, when, when I did the work on Venezuela and, and oil, um, I attended meetings of the Standard Oil Company of New Jersey Retirees Association. And I interviewed them because you're right, I don't want to just look at documents. I want to talk to people as well. I want to get where possible oral histories mm -hmm. are a fundamentally important issue in the construction of an account of understanding. Under, given that they can be, that they, with time, they could be refracted or with time they could have changed, you, all, you account for all that. But the, the oral voice, the, the, the personal voice is a central component to it. And it allows you to include what's not in the archive. So again, using a multiple approaches and sources, you're able to reconstruct a topic. Um, then I also spent time looking at how American academics looked at Venezuela in, in going into the personal archives of several academics at Rutgers in New Jersey, Robert Alexander, for, for instance, who had developed a very close relationship with the political forces in Venezuela. And um, he was very prolific, but he also kept a very intensive record, um, which tells me, again, um, that kind of relationship. And it was an objective. He was a promoter of a certain model in Venezuela. Um, and it was his intent to promote that model. So he, in essence, he became a propagandist. Mm -hmm. um, so it allows me other insights. And then I included Frances Grant, a, a woman who was also a central figure in promoting the Venezuelan model. Um, and then I spent time looking in the AFL-CIO archives. Um, and here's where a, a student, uh, um, uh, Tasha Shariari, uh, had done research, would work with me. Um, and he did research along with me in those archives and was able to produce a very, very important thesis. Um, we shared those archives and he, he did a fantastic thesis in history last year on the role of the AFL-CIO in Venezuela. So again, we share it with students as well. So we can do that kind of building that research and building that research base. That 
case you just mentioned is a perfect segue into how do you involve your students in your research? What are there other cases or other ways you involve them? Well, there, there are plenty of sources here in Pomona College, in the Claremont Colleges. Um, for years, I tried to get students interested um, in Jose Maria Maitorena, was uh, a villista governor of, of Sonora. Um, his son went to the Claremont Colleges um, and donated the archive. So we have an archive at the Claremont Libraries that includes letters from Pancho Villa, from Emiliano Zapata, uh, from uh, a whole cadre, uh, coterie of uh, Mexican revolutionary leaders. Um, and I've, I've, I've got one, of, one of the students, uh, Aldo Urquiza, wrote his uh, thesis on that topic. Um, I had a graduate student, because we also have the, the documents of the San Gabriel Mission, um, the marriage records of the San Gabriel Mission, which allow you to trace ethnicity, gender. Um, so I had a graduate student work on, on those records. Um, and he got his, he was able to do his master's and finish his PhD by using those records. So there are m multiple ways that can happen if, as long as they're interested in the topics that, for which we have sources in the Claremont Colleges. That helps. <laughs> yes. Uh, you're also quoted quite a bit in the, in the media about Latin American issues. Uh, do you see your work as a public intellectual as a part of your mission as a historian? Um, I don't know if it was a mission, but I, I, I think it, it's important to be able to provide um, a different perspective on, on how Latin America is viewed. Um, there, there is so much uh, uh, misinformation about Latin America, uh, and a lot of it is based on um, the lack of knowledge. Um, a lot of it's based on stereotypes and prejudice. Um, and I think it's an important role where possible uh, to play a role in trying to uh, clarify the record, uh, to make sure that the, the material is being presented, um, that the information is being presented, um, that reflects accurately the experience of the country or the issue. And the other role I play sometimes is for the Spanish language media, because again, there's a there's a, a absence of critical reflection and voices sometimes in Spanish language media. So I, I play that role sometimes in both, both arenas um, so that I, either radio, television, or print, um, I, I played that role several times. You mentioned you're working on a book. Can you tell us more about that? Um, the book uh, is uh, looking, as I said, um, the book starts with the research I did with the, for the, the previous book, Enduring Legacy. Um, it, it starts because... I, my hometown of Caripito was a town of 5,000 people in, in eastern Venezuela. It had a refinery. Mm -hmm. um, and as I'm looking through the archives in the National Archives, I find that there is a FBI report on a union meeting in, in that town. And then a year later, I find the CIA report on the union meeting in that town. And then I find the, the Office of Military Intelligence had another report on a union meeting in that town. And then, and then I find that the Office of Naval Intelligence had a report on that town. And then I find the State Department had a report on that town. I said, wait a minute, how many people does it take to, to, uh, <laughs> to have intelligence on a town of 5,000 people? Um, and it became obvious that the U.S. had created a security apparatus, a significant security apparatus to protect its investment in oil in Venezuela. After all, um, the Creole Petroleum Corporation, a wholly owned subsidiary of Standard Oil, was the wealthiest contributor to the Standard Oil coffers. Um, it was its most important foreign investment. Um, and what I came to realize as I peel back the multiple layers was that the U.S. security apparatus didn't just include the military. It also included a cultural component, a social component, what I essentially began calling a nation-building component um, to, to protect its investment in Venezuela um, and to assure that, again, Venezuela would become and would remain um, the country in Latin America that allowed, freely allowed foreign investments and the repatriation of profits back to the U.S., um, during these important periods of the World War II, the Cold War, um, and that essentially the U.S. engaged in nation building in Venezuela. Um, I, as I peeled again the layers, I found um, economic missions, 
um, educational missions, um, tax missions, custom missions, um, just about every group you could imagine would go to Venezuela and attempt to remake Venezuela and its government in the U.S. image um, in ways that I had not thought about. And then I found the academic world had done the same thing, um, particularly Robert Alexander, Francis Grant, um, and a series of other individuals for which Venezuela became their most important work. Um, and, and together then, it gave me an insight into how this process of securing their investments, um, of securing Venezuela, um, in, in fact, created a, a country that may help explain what that Venezuela was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and what um, the challenges it faces today. Uh, finally, let's talk about the future. Um, what's next for Venezuela? Uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Did you bring your magic ball? Yeah. Ball. Um, <laughs> I'll play the lotto tonight, too. <laughs> um, I can only hope that cooler heads prevail, that there is a that there's an effort to find common ground and a, and a mechanism by which are, people are willing to recognize the existence of the other, the presence of the other, um, and that the political system can be cleansed so that that process of recognizing the other moves forward um, and we begin to tackle the more serious, the most serious problems that Venezuela faces from economic dependency to crime, corruption, inequality, um, and um, I don't think that there's a, Venezuela has changed. We're, we're not going back to a pre-1998 period. Venezuela has to be remade in the image of what it is today um, and remade from the perspective of how to resolve the problems it faces today. Um, there, there is no going back, and central to that has to be how to address inequality, poverty um, that has been a constant companion of Venezuela, even since oil was found. And how about Mexico? Right after the elections, you said you were optimi optimistic for the first time in a long time. I Are remain still, optimistic. Yeah? I remain optimistic. I think the challenges that Obrador and not just Obrador, but that Mexico faces are still enormous. And the fight against the gas mafias, known in Mexico as huachicoleros, um, only begins to underscore um, the, 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 the severity of the problem and the depth of the problem that Mexico confronts. We're talking about an institutionalized um, political corruption um, that permeates multiple sectors of society, multiple sectors of the economy, um, and um, must be gradually disarticulated if we're able to open up Mexico so that, um, that we're able to see a country where poverty can drop, violence can drop. Um, and that, in essence, will be the best thing that can be done um, to reduce immigration as well. Well, on that note, we're going to wrap this up. So um, our thanks to Professor Miguel Tinker-Salas for talking with us about his personal and academic journey through the political evolution of Latin America. Thanks, Miguel. Thank you. Thank and you. to all who've stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Until next time.